Please turn with me in God's Word to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, this morning we're finishing this chapter by looking at verses 18 to 29. And while you're turning there, this morning we are going to consider the subject of corruption. Of course, no one is in favor of corruption. Yet it doesn't take long for us to witness corruption in this world, does it? We hear of polit a politician who goes to the Capitol in order to serve his fellow citizens only to have power corrupt him as he takes advantage of others. Or we hear of a police officer who seeks to serve his community, yet money corrupts him and leads him to look the other way. Or we hear of a sports star who rises to play in the big, big league and yet fame corrupts him. And he cheats by using steroids or other drugs. The truth is corruption is a threat to all of us. And we can also see churches become corrupt as they move away from their devotion to Christ. And this morning we read of a church where this corruption has taken place. So again, let's read together here from Revelation 2 of this church. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols." And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works." Now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. My brothers and sisters, may we once more pray to our great God. Father, once again, we are confronted with sobering words, with serious words, the mouth of Christ, 
for His churches. May we indeed recognize the danger of corruption that is, was not only present in this first century church, but is a constant danger for all churches, including our church today. And may we then, through this letter, receive your words as you speak to us in the preaching of your word. Oh, Father, may your spirit so powerfully be at work among us that he will, we will hear and heed this warning of corruption that you have given so that we will not come under the judgment that you so clearly warn us of. But we look forward to the glorious promises that you provide to all who overcome by Christ's grace. Father, be at work among us this morning. We ask and plead these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So how do we prevent corruption from taking hold in our church? What we learn from this letter, brothers and sisters, is that we must beware of spiritual seduction in our midst. Beware of spiritual seduction in our midst. This letter, as the others, can be broken down into four parts. First, we see this through the Son of God who speaks. The Son of God speaks in verse 18. Secondly, the church of God strives in verse 19. Third, the false teacher seduces, verses 20 to 23. And then finally, the faithful believer stands, verses 24 to 29. So the Son of God speaks, the church of, God, or the church of Christ strives, the false teacher seduces, and the faithful believer stands. But let's begin with verse 18, where the Son of God speaks. Christ, of course, gives this revelation to the Apostle John to write down in a book to then send to the seven churches in the region of Asia Minor. And these seven churches represent all of Christ's churches in this age. Which is why after an opening vision that shows Christ's glory as He rules and reigns over all things, that there are seven letters written to each of these churches. Because they are all struggling in various ways during a time of tribulation. So this morning we come to the fourth letter, which we read is written to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Now, what do we know about this city, Thyatira? Well, you may be familiar with Lydia in the book of Acts. In Acts 16, verses 11 to 15, Lydia was a businesswoman from the city of Thyatira who said to sell purple, purple clothing, which may not mean much today when clothing can be of any color. But in that day, purple dye was extremely hard to make and extremely expensive. So purple was the color of royalty. Purple was for those rich and refined people who could afford this expensive colored dye for clothes during the time. She comes from this 
city. Otherwise, there's actually very little known about it. It's about 45 miles southeast from Pergamos on the road to Sardis. And in the peaceful days of the Roman Empire, it grew into a trade and commercial center where much business took place. We do know the main Greek god who is worshipped in Thyatira is Apollos. And he had a temple there in the city. But their culture was mainly influenced by the many trade guilds that were there. It's how business was conducted. And each trade guild had its own patron god or goddess. And there would be regular public idolatrous feasts then to these false gods throughout the city. Once again, then, Christians would have been pressured to join in these religious celebrations and feasts, especially when their work and livelihood would have been tied to these local trade guilds. And so the temptation to give in and participate in order to have a job, to have the money they need for them and their families to continue. Again, the danger of corruption that comes through their society. But then who does this letter come from? Well, as with all the letters, the letter comes from Christ. And what does he say? These things says the Son of God. Here Christ is called the Son of God, which is the only time this title is used of Christ in all of the book of Revelation. It's because Christ is the Son of God. He is the second person of the divine trinity. He is fully God, fully man, united together into the one person of Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. But John here is also drawing on Psalm 2. That's why we began the service this morning with Psalm 2. Because in Psalm 2, God prophetically says of Christ, listen to verses 6 and 7. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And now it's this son of God who's speaking to the church of Thyatira. And it's why John then uses strong Trinitarian language throughout the book of relation. But it's also likely that Christ here refers to himself as the Son of God because he would then be compared with Apollos, the god of the city, who is the son of Zeus. So you see, in the midst of this pagan city, Christ's church is reminded that he is God's promised king over this world, and he is also the true Son of God who is greater than the false god of this city. But what imagery from the opening vision is used to, to describe Christ to this church? We continue reading in verse 18. Who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. So there's two symbols that are drawn from Revelation chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 and which actually allude back to Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 6. There's eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine Brass. But do you remember what it means for his eyes to be like flames of fire? Remember, fire represents judgment, punishment, 
which comes through King Jesus, who sees all. And nothing is hidden from his eyes. But his feet are also seen here like fine brass refined in a furnace. And as a furnace refines and purifies metal. So this refined brass or bronze metal shows us the complete purity of Christ as he rules in righteousness. So here the anger burning in Christ's eyes against evil and wickedness is revealed to a church which needs to be confronted by Christ in the midst, in the fullness of his righteousness and in the midst of their corruption with the world. So, brothers and sisters, Christ here opens by revealing himself as the Son of God, who is our glorious King and Judge. He is the one who's speaking here through his word to his churches this morning. And he is the one who addresses us through his word with all the authority that has been given to him by God in heaven and on earth. Oh, may we never become so comfortable with Christ that we neglect to recognize him as our king and bow before him in submission with reverence and awe, ready to receive his word to us with all of its authority, even when they're hard words and they hurt. See, when he confronts us with the truth, as hard as it may be for us to hear, it's what's best for us. And above all in this world, oh, how we need the clarity which God's word brings into our lives. So we begin with the Son of God who speaks in verses eight, verse 18, but then we continue in verse 19 to see the church of Christ that strives. And as with the other churches, what does Christ say here? I know your works. He knows them. He knows their works. He knows what they've done. And what works from the church does he know? We go on to read four that are quickly listed here. Their love, their service, their faith, and their patience. So love comes first. Since this church is known for its love, it's devoted to loving God and loving others, which contrasts with another church. Remember the church of Ephesus, who has left their first love. Well, this church is an example of love. But how is this love seen? Through their service. This church was eager and willing to help and care for others. This service then was their love in action toward one another in sacrificial generosity. They loved one another. They cared for one another. They served one another. But not only is this church known by Christ for their love, for their service, but third, they are known for their faith. Which means they have trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. They have recognized 
their sinfulness, which deserves the very judgment of God. And yet they have also heard and believed in the love of God, which has come in the person of Jesus Christ for them. As Christ took their place, He died on the cross for sinners. The very punishment that we all deserve for our sin has been taken upon Christ as our substitute. So they had faith in Him. They, they trusted in what Christ had done. They, they turned away from their sins and repentance. They looked to Christ in faith. They were those who believed and trusted in Christ and in Christ alone for their salvation from God's wrath. Knowing that Christ promises to forgive us of our sins, to reconcile us with God, and to receive eternal life. And of course, that is true of all of us here this morning. By believing in Christ, we too are saved by His grace through faith. Not only is there this love and this service among them and this faith among them, but finally we read of their patience or their perseverance. You see, their faith has persevered in the midst of the persecution and the tribulation that was taking place from the pagans surrounding them. So you see, they strive to remain faithful to Christ in the midst of opposition and trouble. And as we go on to see in verse 19, they have not grown weary or tired in these works, but they are growing in them. Look at verse 19. As for your works, the last are more than your first. So when you compare the early days of the church with where they have come when John writes them, you'd see how much their good works have grown, both in terms of their ministry as well as the impact in their community. And do you notice how, even though Christ is writing them serious and sobering words, how he doesn't immediately run to their problems? But he first encourages them where they are strong. He begins with the encouragement of their good works, which shows us then Christ's compassion and his love for the church, even in the midst of their sin. This church did have much to commend itself. Listen to how George Eldon Ladd summarizes the many good qualities of the church of Thyatira. He writes, Here is a church which has much to commend it. Its love has not grown cold as in Ephesus. And the vast majority of the church have let their faith lead them to patient endurance in the faith uh, in the face of the problems the church faced in a pagan environment. This church had manifested admirable growth in the Christian virtues. Her love and faith had steadily increased. So as I reflect upon this verse and on how this church was striving to carry out these good works, I think, you know, how wonderful would it be 
for these four words to describe us? For us to be known for our love. For us to be known for our service. For us to be known for our faith. For us to be known for our patience and perseverance. This church did indeed have much to commend it. And we could learn, frankly, from them. I wonder what we could do then, or what we should do to have Christ say this about us. Yet we also see this church who's striving for these good works out of love. It can still be corrupted. Well, how? How does this happen? This brings us to verses 20 to 23, where the false teacher seduces. As we've seen in the other churches in Revelation here, all is not healthy with this church either. And so we read there in verse 20, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants. So they have allowed the woman Jezebel to teach and seduce them. And like the last church, which tolerated the doctrine of Balaam, so this church tolerates the teaching of Jezebel. You see, both Balaam and Jezebel are historical figures in the Old Testament who symbolize these false teachers that are present in these churches. They symbolize the false teaching that is taking place in these churches. Well, who was Jezebel in the Old Testament? We read about her in First and Second Kings, since she is the wife of the wicked king Ahab, who ruled over the northern kingdom of Israel for 22 years. But listen to this summary of Jezebel's influence in First Kings chapter 21, verses 25 to 26. We read, But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Listen, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols, according to all the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So you see, Jezebel had led her husband, the king, and many Israelites into worshiping Baal, the false god of Baal. And now we have another woman here in the church of Thyatira, who's also leading them away from the faith. Now, whoever this woman is, and frankly, scholars have been debating her identity for centuries. We know what she says about herself here in this verse, right? Because she calls herself a prophetess. So she claims, she's a false teacher who claims to be a prophetess, which means she claims to have direct communion with God and seeks to then bring God's revelation to the church of Christ. And so it's through her prophetic announcements and her supposed connection with God that she has now actually become a leader there over a group in the church. She's developed followers who now listen to her teaching. But notice, 
She's not only teaching wickedness, but how is it described? She's seducing Christ's servants in the church. The danger of seduction where sin and falsehood is not only taught, but seen as good. She makes sin attractive by deceptively arguing that it is acceptable or even beneficial for them to indulge in these practices. Now, let's, if you have the Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew 24, verses 9 to 13, because here Jesus himself warns about false prophets as he speaks to his disciples about the end times. So here, let's hear from Jesus as he speaks to his disciples. Again, Matthew 24, verses 9 to 13. Jesus says to them, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because of lawlessness, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. So now we have a woman named Jezebel, or who's labeled Jezebel, we don't really know her name, who has risen up and deceived many in this church. But what is she teaching and seducing these Christians to do? Well, we go on to read it there in verse 20. To commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, you may remember that these are the same two sinful practices which were taught in the church of Pergamos by those holding to the doctrine of Balaam. But here, they've been switched, which is likely because the main temptation in Pergamos was idolatry, while the main temptation in Thyatira seems to be sexual immorality. And once more, I'm reminded of how greatly sexual immorality is not only tolerated in our society, but celebrated. And how all too often the church has allowed such sin to enter in among us rather than to condemn it but it leads to corruption. So we allow such sin to continue. Even in the church, we have all too frequently compromised our faith through sexual sin. And brothers and sisters, we have called to uphold the beauty and the precious gift that God gives us of sex. See, this is not because we want to spoil everyone's fun as some anti-sex Puritans, but because we know how precious the gift of sex is from God. And we want everybody to truly and fully enjoy His gift within the relationship He has given us that binds a man and a woman together into one flesh union, marriage. And yet here we see Christians who have sinfully taken this practice and cheapened it for the short-term pleasures that the world offers. This brings us to verse 21, which shows another contrast between Pergamos and Thyatira. 
See, Christ warned the church in Pergamos in verse 16, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. But here, what do we see? Verse 21, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Here, Christ has already given this woman time to repent. And she has refused. She's refused. What should a church do when someone in the church refuses to repent? We go through the process of church discipline. She should have come under the discipline of the church of Thyatira. Because a true faith, when it is confronted by sin, when it's confronted with sin, recognizes our own struggle with sinfulness and comes to the cross where we confess our sins and find forgiveness through Christ. What does that mean for those who refuse to repent? That they're not trusting in Christ, but they're looking for satisfaction and joy in sex or in the things of this world. But we also see how this then shows us the responsibility of a church towards its members. See, churches cannot allow sin to go unaddressed. But we must love each other enough to confront one another with our sins, calling on one another to repent, looking for the restoration that comes through repentance. But if those who are among us persist in their sin and refuse to repent, Christ himself says they are to be excommunicated from the church, removed from our numbers, and treated as an unbeliever because they are no longer showing themselves to be followers of Christ. Yet what has this church done? They've allowed her, even in her unrepentance, to remain a member with them. Maybe if they thought it would be easier. Maybe they thought her with her beliefs aren't going to affect or harm anybody else. But this has allowed her false teaching to continue spreading among them, which now has come to endanger their souls to come under the same judgment from God. As Jim, Ham Jim Hamilton writes these verses, he says, When churches fail to exclude the unrepentant, they bear part of the responsibility for the sins provoked by the Jezebels in their midst. So while Pergamos was given a warning before their judgment would come, Thyatira receives an announcement that this woman's judgment has been determined and will come. We read in verse 22, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. So I'll cast her into a sickbed. And this is a play on the expression of her bed. What has she been using her bed for? Adultery. But now her bed will be used as God judges her through sickness and suffering. What about those who follow her teaching? They will not escape God's judgment, 
But Christ will also judge those who joined with her in her sexual immorality. It's what we go on to read in verse 21. Or sorry, verse 22. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. See, they too will be cast in a great tribulation under the judgment of God. And while many Christians face tribulation as faithful believers of Christ, here we also see tribulation serving as a judgment from God. But thank God that's not where this verse ends. What do we read at the end of verse 22? Unless they repent of their deeds. See, while they have tolerated and even struggled over her teaching, they will be forgiven if they repent. And they will not come under the judgment of God. This then is Christ's plead. Christ pleading to them. Repent now and escape the judgment that such wickedness and evil deserves. Because what judgment is coming for those who refuse to repent and join with her? Verse 23. I will kill her children with death. So they have now become her spiritual children and will come under God's condemnation of death. Do you see how serious the situation is? And their death under the judgment of God will then serve as an example to all the churches that you cannot tolerate false teachers and you cannot hide your sin from God. So we Go on to read there in verse 23. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. See, Christ knows everything about us inside and out. That's why the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17 verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But what does he go on to say? God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. That's exactly what Christ says he will do here. See, we must take seriously the false teaching and dangerous doctrines which will lead us away from our faithfulness to Christ. And while we may enjoy a season of ease or even pleasure by following this false teaching, enjoying sin, we will never get away with it. Because Christ will judge. He will be our judge as the one who carries out true justice with full knowledge and without any partiality. He will give to each one of us, we see here, what our works deserve. Do you see then how the false teacher seduces Christ's church and leads to its corruption 
But as we consider ourselves and our church today, don't dismiss this danger too quickly. Thankfully, we don't have a woman like Jezebel here among us. Yet, we do live in a celebrity culture where increasingly we have Christian celebrities that we align ourselves with today. And what happens? We look to leaders who we love to hear teach and preach. And we uncritically accept whatever they say because we believe God is blessing their ministry. How easy it is for us to trust someone because of their persuasiveness, their personality, their attractiveness, their success, their spiritual insights. And yet through all of this, brothers and sisters, we can be led away from Christ and from his word and slowly bring corruption into our souls and into the midst of our church. So we've come a long way through this letter. First, we see the Son of God speaks. Then second, the church of God strives. Third, the false teacher seduces. But finally, listen to the encouragement that comes in verses 24 through 29 as the faithful believer stands. Now Christ turns to address those who have not been seduced by this false teacher's lies in the, here in the church of Thyatira. Verse 24, he says, Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. You see, in this verse, we have Christ's evaluation of Jezebel's doctrine. It's actually a play on words. You know, throughout the New Testament, we read of the deep things of God. For example, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.10, But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. But while this woman claimed to be a prophetess with the deep things of God, what does Christ say she is actually? But a false prophet teaching the deep things of Satan. So may we not be those who believe or follow this doctrine. Because when Christ's church faithfully follows him, he lays no additional burdens on us. This is the kind of lie they would have heard from false teachers. This likely refers back, by the way, to the meeting of the apostles and elders of the church of Jerusalem in Acts 15. We actually read the end of this letter that was sent out from Jerusalem to the churches in my last sermon, but listen again to these words. Let's, let's remind ourselves of, of what they said. Acts 15, verses 28 to 29. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. that You abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So rather than new demands, Christ here calls them to continue living faithfully as they have been. And what does he say to them? 
Verse 25. Behold fast what you have. Hold fast what you have. Do not let go of Christ and His gospel of grace. Do not loosen your grip on your Savior for the seduction of sexual sin or for your social acceptance in this world. And don't miss the last phrase of this verse. Till I come. Say one day such teaching and seduction will come to an end. One day such sinful temptation will stop when Christ returns. May we then stay faithful and steadfast until that day. Because as with the other churches, Christ here gives promises to those who overcome the tribulations and trials and temptations of this world. So we read verse 26, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. See, those who are truly in Christ will persevere in His words and will keep Christ's works until the end. Again, not perfectly, but genuinely, as we are strengthened by the Holy Spirit to continue doing what Christ has called us to do. And when we overcome, when we keep Christ's works until the end, there are two promises of what Christ will give us. Look again, verse 26. First, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. Wow, these promises that Christ makes for us or to us are astounding. Because here he actually returns back to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, we read verses 6 and 7. Now, let's consider verses 8 and 9. And remember, this psalm prophesies of the reign of the coming Messiah, God's anointed King, who is Jesus Christ. So God, the Father, prophetically speaks of Christ in Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, when he says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. But what do we see here in Revelation? That we share in Christ's rule over the earth. Christ gives us power over the nations. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 19, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And sisters, we will give, we will be given the power over the nations to judge. Which is why. The Apostle Paul also later writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? We will be entrusted with the very judgment of Christ in this world. 
That's why we go on to read there in verse 27. As I also, Christ says, as I also have received from my Father. You see, as Christ has received his throne from God the Father to rule over the nations with a rod of iron, so we too will be given power over the nations as judges of the earth. So the day is coming where Christ will rule over the nations by triumphing them over all who oppose him and his church. And we will share in his glorious rule. And I'm going to not go to Revelation 20 and talk about the millennial reign. But that'll be coming. But as if that promise is not great and glorious enough, Christ gives another gift and blessing to the Christians who overcome. We read of it in verse 28, where Christ says, and I will give him the morning star. Now, this promise is admittedly shrouded in mystery. Okay? Nobody knows exactly what the morning star refers to here. The apostle Peter mentions morning star in 2 Peter 1 verse 19 and John later mentions the morning star in Revelation 22 verse 16 so let, let, let's hear this verse as Jesus closes this book he he says I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches I am the root and the offspring of David the bright and morning star so Christ is the morning star but what does he mean when he says I will give him the morning star well, I'm prone to see this connected to Daniel, as Revelation so often is. Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, we read of what is to come. And in these verses, it says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So you see, as Christ's glory shines as the morning star, so we too will one day be resurrected to reflect and radiate His glory like the stars forever. What a glorious future we have to look forward to in Christ. See, no matter... What happens in this world, the dangers we face, the challenges we endure, those who overcome and persevere have a glorious future to look forward to. Which is why in verse 29, John reverses what he has done previously by making his call to hear last. We read, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this letter closes with the same call that comes at the end of all Christ's letters to the churches. Hear these words from the Holy Spirit and keep them. And again, this is what the Spirit says to the churches, to all the churches, including our own. So we once again ask ourselves, are we like the church in Thyatira? How can we avoid this judgment from God? Well, and sisters, this letter makes clear we must beware of spiritual seduction in our midst. Beware 
of spiritual seduction in our midst. Because corruption usually happens slowly. Over time, as we let our guard down. No one intends to be corrupted. No church decides they want to be corrupted. But what happens? Little by little, their guard is let down and they are seduced by false teaching that leads us away from Christ. May we then not take the easy path of avoiding controversy, but may we be ready to confront false teaching as it arises in our midst. And let us not listen to persuasive words of deception from those appealing to social acceptance or worldly thinking. But let us rely on Christ and on the truthfulness of His Word, even as it challenges us to live contrary to our culture and it costs us the approval of our community. Let us find our satisfaction and joy in Christ alone, who promises us an eternal life of glory in Him. Oh, brothers and sisters, may Cornerstone Fellowship Church and each and every one of us who are members of this church not experience the corruption that is warned of us this morning. But may we hear these words from Christ, who in all of His holiness and righteousness calls us to repent and return to Christ where we will rejoice in all He provides us. So let us pray. Father, as we hear words that Christ gave to a church all those many centuries ago, may we hear them afresh in our own minds and hearts today. May we not be like the church of Thyatira who tolerated the teaching and seduction of a woman labeled Jezebel. But may we look to Christ alone for our salvation and for our future. Father, we pray then for all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.